I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following is an ad for The Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project, launched today and formed by several of Trump's fiercest conservative critics, has already raised over a million dollars in its pursuit to defeat Donald Trump. Announced the creation of the Lincoln Project, including George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, Mike Madrid, Jennifer Horn, Reed Galen, Ron Steslow, Rick Wilson. The Republicans have never shied away from criticizing President Trump, formed a political action committee. The PAC's mission is, quote, we are Republicans and we want Trump defeated. Over these next 11 months, our efforts will be dedicated to defeating President Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. Mr. Trump and his enablers have abandoned conservatives and long-standing Republican principles and replaced it with Trumpism, empty faith, they call it, led by a bogus prophet. And to elect those patriots who will hold the line. group called the Lincoln Project, who just released this video. Oof, that is The sad. Lincoln Project recently yeah, launched that ad. The group plans to purchase television and digital ads in several battleground states. And Trumpism requires a total lack of shame. To go into the swing states where the race will be decided in 2020. The Lincoln Project is about defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism at the The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. The Lincoln Project needs your help to defend the integrity of the Constitution and defeat Trump and Trumpism. Sign up now at thelincolnproject.us. It's January 27, 2020. On the sixth day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump, the president's team of lawyers resume their arguments in defense of the president. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Senators heard 24 hours of presentations from the House managers over three days last week as they made their case for removing the president from office. On Saturday, White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his team began their presentation, spending two hours summarizing their arguments. They continue today just as press reports indicate that former National Security Advisor John Bolton wrote in his not-yet-published book manuscript that President Trump told Bolton in August that he wanted to continue freezing $391 million in security assistance to Ukraine until officials there helped with investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. This is the impeachment, Episode 6, the President's Defense Team's second day of presentations. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. The President's attorney, Jay Sekulow, began the defense's presentation, arguing that the House's case is tantamount to a policy difference rather than an impeachable offense. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Members of the Senate, managers. What we've done on Saturday is the pattern that we're going to continue today as far as how we're going to deal with the case. We deal with transcript evidence. We deal with publicly available information. 
We do not deal with speculation, allegations that are not based on evidentiary standards at all. We are going to highlight some of those very facts we talked about very quickly on Saturday. You're going to hear more about that. I want to give you a little bit of an overview of what we plan to do today in our presentation. You will hear from a number of lawyers. Each one of these lawyers will be addressing a particular aspect of the President's case. One of the things that became very clear to us as we looked at the presentation from the House managers was the lack of focus on that July 25th transcript. And that's because the transcript actually doesn't say what they would like it to say. Now we've heard, and you will hear more, about that in the days ahead. We know about Mr. Schiff's version of the transcript. You heard it. You saw it. I want to keep coming back to facts, facts that are really undisputed. The President, in his conversation, was clear on a number of points. But so was President Zelensky. I, me I mentioned that at the close of my arguments earlier, that it was President Zelensky that said, no pressure. I didn't feel any pressure. And again, as this kind of reading of minds of what people were saying, I think we need to look at what they actually said and how it's backed up. It is our position as the President's counsel that the President was at all time acting under his constitutional authority, under his legal authority, international interest, and pursuant to his oath of office. Asking a foreign leader to get to the bottom of issues of corruption is not a violation of an oath. We are going to have a series of lawyers address you. So it will not be one lawyer for hours and hours. We're going to have a series of lawyers address you on a variety of issues. This is how we envision the President's defense going. We thought it would be appropriate to start with an overview, if you will, of some of the significant historical issues and constitutional issues involving impeachment proceedings, since we don't have a long history of that, and I think that's good for the country that we don't. And I think we would all agree. But if this becomes the new standard, the future is going to look a lot different. Ken Starr, the former independent counsel who led the investigation into President Bill Clinton, talked about the history of oversight investigations, arguing that presidential impeachment should involve a violation of established laws, and that impeachment should proceed on a bipartisan basis, and that the House process was deficient in that regard. Of last resort. Members of this body can help and end this very proceeding restore our constitutional and historical traditions. Above all, by returning to the text of the Constitution itself. It can do so by its example here in these proceedings, in weaving the tapestry of what can rightly be called the common law of presidential impeachment. That's what courts do. They weave the common law. There are indications within the constitutional text, I'll come to our history, that this fundamental question is appropriate to be asked. You're familiar with the arguments. Was there a crime or other violation of established law alleged? So let's turn to the text. Throughout the Constitution's description of impeachment, the text speaks always always, without exception, in terms of crimes. 
It begins, of course, with treason, the greatest of crimes against the state and against we the people. But so misused as a bludgeon in parliamentary experiences to lead the founders to actually define the term in the Constitution itself. Bribery, an iniquitous form of moral and legal corruption, and the basis of so many of the 63 impeachment proceedings over the course of our history. Again, almost all of them against judges. And then the mysterious terms, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Once again, the language is employing the language of crimes. The Constitution is speaking to us in terms of crimes. Will law professors agree with this? No. But with all due respect to the academy, this is not an academic gathering. We are in court. We're not just in court. With all due respect to the Chief Justice and the Supreme Court of the United States, we're in democracy's ultimate court. So let me comment briefly. This constitutionally-based recognition of executive privilege and then companion privileges, the deliberative process privilege, the immunity of close presidential advisors from being summoned to testify, these are all firmly established in our law. If there is a dispute between the People's House and the President of the United States over the availability of documents or witnesses, and there is in each and every administration, then go to court. It really is as simple as that. I don't need to belabor the point. But here's the point I would like to emphasize. Frequently, the Justice Department advises the President of the United States that the protection of the presidency calls whatever the president might want to do as a political matter, as an accommodation and a spirit of comedy, to protect privileged conversations and communications. I've heard it in my two tours of duty at the Justice Department. Don't release the documents, Mr. President. If you do, you're injuring the presidency. Go to court. We've, we've heard concerns about the length of time that the litigation might take. Those of us who've litigated know that sometimes litigation does take longer than we would like. Justice delayed is justice denied. We would all agree with that. But our history, Churchill's maxims study history. Our history tells us that's not necessarily so. Take by way of example the Pentagon Papers case. Orders issued preventing and sanctioning a gross violation of the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of the press. An order issued out of the district court June the 15th, 1971, 
That order was reversed in an opinion by the Supreme Court of the United States two weeks later, June the 15th. The House of Representatives could have followed that well-trodden path. It could have sought expedition. The E. Barrett-Cordeman Courthouse is six blocks down. The judges are there. They're all very able. They're hardworking, people of integrity. Follow the path. Follow the path of the law. Go to court. There would have been at least one problem had the House seen fit to go to court and remain in court. The issue is before you. But among other flaws, the Office of Legal Counsel determined, and I've read the opinion, and I believe it's correct, that with all respect, all House subpoenaed issued prior to the adoption of House Resolution 660, which for the first time authorized the impeachment inquiry as a House. All subpoenas were invalid. They were void. With all due respect to the Speaker of the House of Representatives and all of her abilities and her vast experience, under our Constitution, she was powerless to do what she purported to do. As has been said now time and again, especially throughout the fall, the Constitution does entrust the sole power of impeachment to the House of Representatives. But that's the House. It's 435 members elected from across the Constitutional Republic. Not one, no matter how able she may be. In the People's House, every congressperson gets a vote. We know the concept, one person, one vote. More generally, the president, as I've reviewed the record, has consistently and scrupulously followed the advice and counsel of the Justice Department, and in particular, the Office of Legal Counsel. He's been obedient. As you know, that important office, many of you have had your own experiences professionally with that office, is staffed with lawyers of great ability. It has a reputation for superb work. It has done such thoughtful work in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And the office is now headed by a brilliant lawyer who served as a law clerk to Justice Anthony Kennedy. The House may disagree with the guidance provided to the President by that office. The House frequently does disagree. But for the President to follow the guidance of the Department of Justice with respect to an interbranch legal and constitutional dispute cannot reasonably be viewed as an obstruction and most emphatically not as an impeachable offense. I would guide this court as it's coming through the deliberation process to read the president's trial brief with respect to process. 
It was just as Felix Frankfurter, confidant of FDR, brilliant jurist, who reminded America that the history of liberty is in large measure the history of process, of procedure. In particular, I would guide the High Court to the discussion of the long history of the House of Representatives over two centuries in providing due process protections in its impeachment investigations. It's a richly historical discussion. The good news is you can read the core of it in four pages, pages 62 to 66 of the trial brief. Puts in bold relief, I believe, an irrefutable fact. This House of Representatives, with all respect, saw fit to turn its back on its own established procedures. Procedures that had been followed faithfully decade after decade, regardless of who was in control, regardless of political party. All those procedures were torn asunder. And all over the vigorous objections from the unanimous and vocal minority. I need not remind this high court that in this country, minority rights are important. Minority rights should be protected. Equal justice. But then again, the House members took no oath to be impartial. Due process could have been honored. Basic rights could have been honored. The House rules, the House's traditions could have been honored. But what's done is done. These two articles come before this court, this high court of impeachment, dripping with fundamental process violations. Jay Sekulow then reviewed the factual aspects of their case in defense of the president. We're next going to address a factual analysis to briefly reflect my colleague, the Deputy White House Counsel, Mike Papira, will be joining us in a moment to discuss more of the facts to continue the discussion that we had on Saturday. But let me just recap very quickly what was laid out on Saturday. First, the transcript shows that the President did not condition either security assistance or a meeting on anything. The pause security assistance funds aren't even mentioned on the call. Second, President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials repeatedly said there was no quid pro quo and no pressure on them to review anything. Third, President Zelensky and high-ranking Ukrainian officials did not even know the security assistance was paused till the end of August, over a month after the July 25th call. Fourth, not a single witness testified that the president himself said that there was any connection between any investigation and security assistance, a presidential meeting, or anything else. Fifth, the security assistance flowed on September 11th and a presidential meeting took place on September 25th without the Ukrainian government, without Ukrainian government announcing any 
investigations. Finally, in the blind drive to impeach the President, President Trump, in reality, strategically, has been the best friend and supporter of Ukraine, certainly in our recent history. These are the facts. That is what's before you. Deputy White House Counsel Mike Papura will now address additional facts related to these proceedings. To echo my colleague, Mr. Seculo, briefly, the House manager's own evidence shows that President Trump did not condition anything on investigations during the July 25 call with President Zelensky and did not even mention the pause security assistance on the call. President Zelensky said that he felt no pressure on the call. President Zelensky and the top Ukrainian officials did not learn of the pause on the security assistance until more than a month after the July 25 call. And the House manager's own record, their record that they developed and brought before this chamber, reflects that anyone who spoke with the President said that the President made clear that there was no linkage between security assistance and investigations. There's another category of evidence demonstrating that the pause on security assistance was distinct and unrelated to investigations. The President released the aid without the Ukrainians ever announcing any investigations or undertaking any investigations. Here is Ambassador Sondland. And the fact is, the aid was given to Ukraine without any announcement of new investigations. That's correct. And President Trump did, in fact, meet with President Zelensky in September at the United Nations, correct? He did. And there was no announcement of investigations before this meeting? Correct. And there was no announcement of investigations after this meeting? That's right. So while the security assistance was paused, the administration did precisely what you would expect. It addressed President Trump's concerns about the two issues that I mentioned on Saturday, burden sharing and corruption. A number of law and policymakers also contacted the President and the White House to provide input on the security assistance issue during this period, including Senator Lindsey Graham. The process culminated on September 11, 2019. On that day, the President spoke with Vice President Pence and Senator Rob Portman. The Vice President, in NSC Senior Director Tim Morrison's words, was armed with his conversation with President Zelensky from their meeting just days earlier in Warsaw, Poland, and both the Vice President and Senator Portman related their view of the importance of the assistance to Ukraine and convinced the President that the aid should be dispersed immediately. After the meeting, President Trump terminated the pause and the support flowed to Ukraine. I want to take a step back now and talk for a moment about why the security assistance was briefly paused. Again, in the words of the House manager's own witnesses. Witness after witness 
testified that confronting Ukrainian corruption should be at the forefront of United States foreign policy toward Ukraine. They also testified that the President had long-standing and sincere concerns about corruption in Ukraine. The House managers, however, told you that it was laughable to think that the President cared about corruption in Ukraine. But that's not what the witnesses said. According to Ambassador Volker, President Trump demonstrated that he had a very deeply rooted negative view of Ukraine based on past corruption. Please keep in mind also that the pause of the Ukraine Security Assistance Program was far from unusual or out of character for President Trump. The American people know that the President is skeptical of foreign aid and that one of his top campaign promises and priorities in office has been to avoid wasteful spending of American taxpayer dollars abroad. Meanwhile, the same people who today claim that President Trump was not genuinely concerned about burden sharing were upset when, as a candidate, President Trump criticized free riding by NATO members. This past summer, the administration paused, reviewed, and in some cases canceled hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid to Afghanistan, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and Lebanon. And these are just some of the reviews of foreign aid undertaken at the very same time that the Ukraine aid was paused. So what happened during the brief period of time while the Ukraine security assistance was paused? People were gathering information and monitoring the facts on the ground in Ukraine as the new parliament was sworn in and began introducing anti-corruption legislation. Notwithstanding what the House managers would have you believe, the Vice President did say that President Trump wanted the Europeans to do more to support Ukraine and that he wanted the Ukrainians to do more to fight corruption. On September 11, based on the information collected and presented to President Trump, the President lifted the pause on the security assistance. As Mr. Morrison explained, our process gave the President the confidence he needed to approve the release of the security sector assistance. The House managers say that the talk about corruption and burden sharing is a ruse. No one knew why the security assistance was paused, and no one was addressing the President's concerns with Ukrainian corruption and burden sharing. The House managers' own evidence, their own record, tells a different story. The House managers didn't mention the work that the White House was doing to schedule the meeting between President Trump and President Zelensky, did they? Why not? Scheduling a presidential meeting takes time. Mr. Morrison testified that his directorate, which was just one of several, had a dozen schedule requests in with the president for meetings with foreign leaders that we were looking to land, and Ukraine was but one of those requests. Due to both presidents' busy schedules, according to Mr. Morrison, it became clear that the earliest opportunity for the two presidents to meet would be in Warsaw at the beginning of September. 
The entire notion that a bilateral meeting between President Trump and President Zelensky was somehow conditioned on a statement about investigations is completely defeated by one straightforward fact. A bilateral meeting between President Trump and President Zelensky was planned for September 1 in Warsaw, the same Warsaw meeting we were just discussing without the Ukrainians saying a word about investigations. As it turned out, President Trump was not able to attend the meeting in Warsaw because of Hurricane Dorian. President Trump asked Vice President Pence to attend in his place. But even that scheduling glitch did not put off their meeting for long. President Trump and President Zelensky met at the next available date, September 25, on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. As President Zelensky himself has said, there were no preconditions for his meeting with President Trump. The House managers have seized upon Ambassador Sondland's claim that Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. But again, Ambassador Sondland was only guessing based on incomplete information. He testified that the President never told him that there was any sort of a condition for a meeting with President Zelensky. Why then did he think there was one? In his own words, Ambassador Sondland said that he could only repeat what he heard through Ambassador Volker from Giuliani. So he didn't even hear from Mr. Giuliani himself. But Ambassador Volker, who is the supposed link between Mr. Giuliani and Ambassador Sondland, thought no such thing. Ambassador Volker testified unequivocally that there was no linkage between the meeting with President Zelensky and Ukrainian investigations. I'm going to read the full questions and answers because this passage is key. This is from Ambassador Volker's deposition testimony. Question. Did President Trump ever withhold a meeting with President Zelensky or delay a meeting with President Zelensky until the Ukrainians committed to investigate the allegations that you just described concerning the 2016 presidential election? Answer. The answer to the question is no, if you want a yes or no answer. But the reason the answer is no is we did have difficulty scheduling a meeting, but there was no linkage like that. Question. You said that you were not aware of any linkage between the delay in the Oval Office meeting between President Trump and President Zelensky and the Ukrainian commitment to investigate the two allegations as you described them, correct? Answer, correct. On no fewer than 15 separate occasions over the past week, the House managers played a video of Ambassador Sondland saying that the announcement of the investigations was a prerequisite for a meeting or call with the President. Fifteen times. They never once read to you the testimony that I just did. They never once read to you the testimony in which Ambassador Volker refuted what Ambassador Sondland claimed he heard from Ambassador Volker. Ambassador Taylor testified that President Trump's policy toward Ukraine was a substantial improvement over President Obama's policy. Ambassador Volker agreed 
that America's policy towards Ukraine has been strengthened under President Trump, whom he credited with approving each of the decisions made along the way. Ambassador Yovanovitch testified that President Trump's decision to provide lethal weapons to Ukraine meant that our policy actually got stronger over the last three years. She called the policy shift that President Trump directed very significant. This is why the House manager's first article of impeachment must fail. For the six reasons I set forth when I began on Saturday, there was no linkage between investigations and security assistance or a meeting on the July 25 call. The Ukrainians said there was no quid pro quo and they felt no pressure. Jane Raskin, a member of the defense team, then argued that House managers have distorted the role of former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney. The House managers would have you believe that Mr. Giuliani is at the center of this controversy. They've anointed him the proxy villain of the tale, the leader of a rogue operation. Their presentations were filled with ad hominem attacks and name-calling. Cold-blooded political operative, political bagman. But I suggest to you that he's front and center in their narrative reason alone to distract from the fact that the evidence does not support their claims. So what's the first tell that Mr. Giuliani's role in this may not be all that it's cracked up to be? They didn't subpoena him to testify. In fact, Mr. Schiff and his committee never even invited him to testify. They took a stab at subpoenaing his documents back in September, And when his lawyer responded with legal defenses to the production, the House walked away. But if Rudy Giuliani is everything they say he is, don't you think they would have subpoenaed and pursued his testimony? Ask yourselves, why didn't they? In fact, it appears the House committee wasn't particularly interested in presenting you with any direct evidence of what Mayor Giuliani did or why he did it. The House managers also make much of a May 23rd White House meeting during which the President suggested to his Ukraine working group, including Ambassadors Volker and Sondland, that they should talk to Rudy. The managers told you that President Trump gave a directive and a demand that the group needed to work with Giuliani if they wanted him to agree with the Ukraine policy they were proposing. But those words, directive and demand are misleading. They misrepresent what the witnesses actually said. Ambassador Volker testified that he understood, based on the meeting, that Giuliani was only one of several sources of information for the president. And the president simply wanted officials to speak to Mr. Giuliani because he knows all these things about Ukraine. As Volker put it, The president's comment was not an instruction, but just a comment. Ambassador Sondland agreed. He testified that he didn't take it as an order, and he added that the president wasn't even specific about what he wanted us to talk to Giuliani about. Mayor Giuliani began investigating Ukraine corruption and interference in the 2020 election way back in November of 2018 a full six months before Vice President Biden announced his candidacy, and four months before the release of the Mueller report, 
when the biggest false conspiracy theory in circulation that the Trump campaign had colluded with Russia during the 2016 campaign was still in wide circulation. As The Hill reported, as President Trump's highest profile defense attorney, the former New York City mayor, often known simply as Rudy, believed the Ukrainians' evidence could assist in his defense against the Rus Russian collusion investigation and former special counsel Robert Mueller's final report. So Giuliani began to check things out in late 2018 and early 2019. The genesis of Mayor Giuliani's investigation was also reported by numerous other media, media outlets, including CNN, which related that Giuliani's role in Ukraine can be traced back to November 2018, when he was contacted by someone he describes as a well-known investigator. The Washington Post and many other news outlets reported the same information. So yes, Mayor Giuliani was President Trump's personal attorney, but he was not on a political errand. As he has stated repeatedly and publicly, he was doing what good defense attorneys do. He was following a lead from a well-known private investigator. He was gathering evidence regarding, regarding Ukrainian election interference to defend his client against the false allegations being investigated by Special Counsel Mueller. But the House managers didn't even allude to that possibility. Instead, they just repeated their mantra that Giuliani's motive was purely political. And that speaks volumes about the bias with which they have approached their mission. The bottom line is, Mr. Giuliani defended President Trump vigorously, relentlessly, Jay Sekulow then introduced Pam Bondi, former attorney general for the state of Florida. Bondi discussed corruption in Ukraine, the Ukrainian company of Burisma, and the activities of former Vice President Biden and Hunter Biden. We're going to now turn our attention to a separate topic. It's one that was um, been discussed a lot on the floor here and will be discussed now. Uh, presenting for the president is the former attorney general for the state of Florida, Pam Bondi. She is also a prosecutor, a career prosecutor. She's handled countless cases. She's going to discuss an issue that the House managers have put pretty much at the center of their case, and that's the issue of corruption in Ukraine, particularly with regard to a company known as Burisma. I yield my time, Mr. Chief Justice, to former Gen Attorney General Pam Bondi. When the House managers gave you their presentation, when they submitted their brief, they repeatedly referenced Hunter Biden and Burisma. They spoke to you for over 21 hours, and they referenced Biden or Burisma over 400 times. And when they gave these presentations, they said there was nothing Nothing to see. It was a sham. This is fiction. In their trial memorandum, the House managers described this as baseless. Now, why did they say that? Why did they invoke 
Biden or Burisma over 400 times. The reason they needed to do that is because they are here saying that the president must be impeached and removed from office for raising a concern. And that's why we have to talk about this today. They say sham, they say baseless, because they say this because if it's okay for someone to say, hey, you know what? Maybe there's something here worth raising, then their case crumbles because they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there is no basis to raise this concern. But that's not what public records show. They all raised this issue. We would prefer not to be talking about this. We would prefer not to be discussing this. But the House managers have placed this squarely at issue, so we must address it. Let's look at the facts. In early 2014, Joe Biden, our Vice President of the United States, led the United States foreign policy in Ukraine with the goal of rooting out corruption. According to an annual study published by Transparency International, during this time, Ukraine was one of the most corrupt countries in the entire world. In Ukraine, there's a natural gas company called Burisma. Burisma has been owned by an oligarch named Mykola Solchevsky. Here's what happened very shortly after Vice President Biden was made U.S. point man for Ukraine. His son, Hunter Biden, ends up on the board of Burisma, working for and paid by the oligarch Zolchevsky. In February 2014, in the wake of anti-corruption uprising by the people of Ukraine, Zolchevsky flees the country, flees Ukraine. Zolchevsky, the oligarch, is well known. George Kent, the very first witness that the Democrats called during their public hearings testified. Now, the media also noticed the same day an ABC News reporter asked Obama White House Press Secretary Jay Carney about it. Here's what happened. Hunter Biden has now taken a position with the largest oil and gas company, holding company in Ukraine. Is there any concern about at least the appearance of a, uh, of a conflict there? To the vice president's I would refer you uh, to the vice president's office. I saw those reports. You know, Hunter Biden and other uh, members of the Biden family are obviously private citizens, and uh, where they work is not uh, does not reflect an endorsement by the administration uh, or by the vice president or president. But I would refer you to the vice president's office. The next day, the Washington Post ran a story about it. It said, the appointment of the vice president's son to a Ukrainian oil board looks nepotistic at best, nefarious at worst. Again, the appointment of the vice president's son to a Ukrainian oil board looks nepotistic at best, nefarious at worst. And the media didn't stop questioning asking questions here. It kept going. Here's ABC. You have to fight the cancer of corruption. But then something strange happened. 
Just three weeks later, a Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma, accused of corruption, appoints Hunter Biden, seen here in their promotional videos, to their board of directors, paying his firm more than a million dollars a year. Here's more from ABC. Continued on. And Ukraine wasn't the only country where Hunter Biden's business and his father's diplomacy as vice president intersected. It also happened in China. This video shows Chinese diplomats greeting Vice President Biden as he arrived in Beijing in December of 2013. Right by his side, his son Hunter. Less than two weeks later, Hunter's firm had new business, creating an investment fund in China involving the government-controlled Bank of China. With reports, they hope to raise $1.5 billion. In fact, every witness who was asked about Hunter Biden's involvement with Burisma agreed there was a potential appearance of a conflict of interest. Multiple House Democrat witnesses, including those from the De Department of State, the National Security Council, and others, unanimously testified there was a potential appearance of a conflict of interest. These were their witnesses. How much money did Hunter Biden get for being on the board? Well, you start looking at these bank records. According to reports, between April 2014 and October 2015, Burisma paid more than $3.1 million to Devin Archer and Hunter Biden. That's over the course of a year and a half. How do we know this? Some of Devin Archer's bank records were disclosed during an unrelated federal criminal case having nothing to do with Hunter Biden. These bank records show 17 months that Burisma wired two payments of $83,333, not just for one month, for two months, for three months, but for 17 months. According to Reuters, sources report that of the two payments of $83,333 each, one was for Hunter Biden and one Devin Archer. We know they're titans of their industry, they're highly qualified, and as such, they're well compensated. Even so, Hunter Biden was paid significantly more. This is how well he was compensated. So Hunter Biden has paid over $83,000 a month, while the average American family of four during that time each year made less than $54,000, and that's according to U.S. Census Bureau. Now let's talk about one of the Democrats' central witnesses, Ambassador Yovanovitch. In May 2016, Ambassador Yovanovitch was nominated to be ambassador in Ukraine. Here's what happened when she was preparing for her Senate confirmation hearing. Congresswoman Stefanik had asked you um, how the Obama-Biden uh, State Department had prepared you to answer questions about Burisma and Hunter Biden specifically. You recall that? Yes. Out of thousands of companies in the Ukraine, the only one that you recall the Obama-Biden State Department preparing you to answer questions about was the one where the vice president's son was on the board. Is that fair? Yes. So she's being prepared to come before all of you, all of you, and talk about world issues 
going to be in charge of the Ukraine. And what did they feel, the only company, the company that it was important to brief her on in case she got a question? Burisma. Ambassador Yovanovitch was confirmed July 2016 as the Obama administration was coming to a close. In September 2016, a Ukrainian court cancels the oligarch Zolchevsky's arrest warrant for lack of progress in the case. In mid-January 2017, Burisma announces that all legal proceedings against it and Zolchevsky have been closed. Both of these things happened while Hunter Biden sat on the board of Burisma. Around this time, Vice President Biden leaves office. Years later now, former Vice President Biden publicly details what we know happened, his threat to withhold more than a billion dollars in loan guarantees unless Shokin was fired. Here's the Vice President. He said, no, I said, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority, you're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. What he didn't say on that video, according to the New York Times, this was the prosecutor investigating Burisma. Shokin. Following Bondi's presentation, Jay Sekulow introduced Eric Hirschman, another lawyer on behalf of the president, who continued to drive into facts that the president's defense say House managers neglected. That case pretty much boils down to one straightforward contention, that the president abused his power to promote his own personal interests and not our country's interests. The House managers say that the president did not take the steps that they allege for the benefit of our country, but only for his own personal benefit. But if that's wrong, if what the president had wanted would have benefited our country, then the managers have not met their burden, and these articles of impeachment must be rejected. As we will see, the House managers do not come close to meeting their burden. And you know something else about Vice President Biden? Well, back in January of 2018, as you heard, former Vice President Biden bragged that he had pressured the Ukrainians, threatened them, indeed coerced them, into firing the state prosecutor who reportedly was investigating the very company that paid millions of dollars to his son. He bragged that he gave them six hours to fire the prosecutor, or he would cut off one billion dollars in U.S. loan guarantees. I said, no, I said, I'm not going we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Are we really to believe that it was the policy of our government to withhold a billion dollars? A billion dollars of needed guarantees to, in aid to Ukraine, unless they fired a prosecutor on the spot? 
Was that really our policy? We have all heard continuously from the managers, and many agree about the risks to the Ukrainians posed by the Russians. We have heard the managers say that a slight delay in providing funding to Ukraine endangers our national security and jeopardizes our interests, and therefore the president must immediately be, be removed from office. Yet they also argue that it was the official policy of our country to withhold a billion dollars unless one individual was fired within a certain matter of hours. Was that really, or could it ever be, our United States policy? According to the House manager's theory, we were willing to jeopardize Ukrainians unless somebody who happened to be investigating Burisma was promptly fired. Were we going to jeopardize the Ukrainian economy because a prosecutor was not fired in the six-hour time period Vice President Biden demanded? Does anyone really believe that was or ever could be our United States foreign policy? And just in case the managers or others try to argue, no, 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 he wasn't serious about that. He was just bluffing. What kind of message would that send to the Russians about our support for the Ukrainians, that we would bluff and bluff with the Ukrainian economy? Now, I want to take a moment to cover a few additional points about the July 25th telephone call in which the House managers believe that the President in the United States, in their words, was shaking down and pressuring the President of Ukraine to do his personal bidding. First of all, this was not the first telephone call that the President of the United States had with other foreign leaders. So think about this for a moment. The call was routed through the Situation Room. It was a scheduled call. There were other people on the call. There were other people taking notes, and obviously the President was aware of that fact. The House managers talk about the fact that the President did not follow the approved talking points, as if the President, any President, is obligated to follow approved talking points. And the last time I checked, and I think this is clear to the American people, President Trump knows how to speak his mind. But remember the fake transcript that Manager Schiff read when he was before the Intelligence Committee? His mob, gangster-like, fake rendition of the call? Well, I prosecuted organized crime for years. The type of description of what goes on, what House Manager Schiff tried to create for the American people, is completely detached from reality. It is as if we were supposed to believe that mobsters would invite people they do not know into an organized crime meeting to sit around and take notes to establish the corrupt intent. Manager Schiff, our jobs as prosecutors, in February 2004, Russia began its military campaign against Ukraine. Against the advice and urgings of Congress and many in his own administration, President Obama refused then and throughout the remainder of his presidency to provide lethal assistance to Ukraine. In the House, Manager Schiff joined many of his colleagues in a letter-writing campaign to President Obama urging that, quote, the U.S. must supply Ukraine with the means to defend itself, close quote, against Russian aggression and urging President Obama to quickly approve additional efforts to support Ukraine's efforts to defend its sovereign territory 
including the transfer of lethal defense weapons to the Ukraine military. On March 23rd, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed a resolution urging President Obama to immediately exercise the authority by Congress to provide Ukraine with lethal defensive weapon system. The very next day, this Senate passed a unanimous resolution urging the President to prioritize and expedite the provision of defensive lethal and non-lethal military assistance to Ukraine, consistent with United States national interest and policies. As one he senator here stated in March 2015, providing non-lethal equipment like night vision goggles is all well and good, but giving the Ukrainians the ability to see the Russians coming, but not the ability to stop them, is not the answer. Yet, President Obama refused. He refused even the face of support by senior career professionals recommending he provide lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. By contrast, what did President Zelensky and the Russians know? They knew that President Trump did, did provide that support. That clearly was the most material thing to him, much more, much more than import, important than a meeting in the Oval Office. The House managers also make much of their contention that President Trump supposedly wanted President Zelensky only to announce an investigation, not conduct anything. But that contention makes no sense. President Trump's call with President Zelensky was in July of 2019, almost a year and a half before our next election. Would only a bare announcement so far in advance with no follow-up really have had any effect on the election as the managers claim? Would anyone have remembered the announcement a year or more later? Ironically, it is the House managers who have put Burisma and its connection to the Bidens front and center in this proceeding. And now the voters will know about it and probably, probably will remember it. Be careful what you wish for. The House managers would have the American people believe that there is a threat, an imminent threat to the national security of our country for which the president must be removed immediately from the highest office in the land. Because what? Because he had a phone call with a foreign leader and discussed corruption. Because he paused for a short period of time, giving away our tax dollars to a foreign country. That is their theory. It is absurd on its face. Not one American life was in jeopardy or lost by the short delay, and they know it. And how do we know that they know it? Because they went on vacation after they adopted the Articles of Impeachment. They did not cancel their recess. They did not rush back to deliver the Articles of Impeachment to the Senate because of this supposed terrible, imminent threat to our national security. What did they do? The urgency. The timing is really driven by the urgency. The urgency. Nothing could be more urgent. The urgency. And urgent and urgent. There's an urgency, you know, to this. And we must move swiftly. We don't have time to screw around. It's about urgency. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still holding on to the articles of impeachment. Urgency? Urgency for which you want to immediately remove the President of the United States? 
You sat on the articles for a month. The longest delay in the history of our country. They adopted them on Friday, December 13th, 2019. Friday the 13th. Went on vacation and finally decided after one of their Democratic presidential debates had finished and after the BCS football championship game that it was time to deliver them. What happened to their national security interest argument? Wasn't that the reason that they said they had to rush to vote? It's urgent, they told us. No due process for this president. It is a crisis of monumental proportion. Our national security is at risk every additional day that he's in office, they tell us. Members of the Senate, House managers, we're going to do two things this evening. Uh, we're going to first hear from former independent counsel Robert Ray. Uh, he's going to discuss uh, issues of how he was involved in investigations, the legal issues, some of the history of how that works. Under our Constitution is deserving of my respect and yours. For only the third time in our nation's history, the Senate is convened to try the President of the United States on articles of impeachment. Those articles do not allege crimes. The Constitution, the framers' intent, and historical practice all dictate that well-founded articles of impeachment allege both that a high crime has been committed and that, as such, removal from office is warranted only when such an offense also constitutes an abuse of the public trust. In reliance on Alexander Hamilton's off-quoted statement in Federalist Number 65, that's the one repeatedly taken out of context and cited in favor of an expansive scope of jurisdiction by Congress over alleged offenses, in Hamilton's words, which proceed from misconduct of a public official constituting the abuse of or violation of some public trust. The irony that Hamilton, the greatest proponent in this country of executive and presidential authority that perhaps ever lived, should be front and center in this partisan impeachment effort to remove a duly elected president from office is apparently lost on House impeachment managers. I dare say that Hamilton would roll over in his grave at the end of Wall Street in New York City to know that contrary to what he explicitly acknowledged in Federalist Number 69, that a president can only be removed from office upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. We should just read the word crime right out of the impeachment clause of the Constitution and proceed merrily along the way towards an impeachment trial with witnesses. During the impeachment trial 21 years ago in January 1999, stated it best, and I quote, to argue as the managers do that the phrase other high crimes and misdemeanors was really meant to encompass a wide range of offenses simply flies in the face of the clear intent of the framers who carefully chose their language, knew exactly what those words meant, and knew exactly what risks they intended to protect against, close quote. One of those concerns and risks, Counselor Ruff went on to explain, was that impeachment be limited and well-defined. For our purposes here, what is required is both that crimes be alleged and that those crimes be of the type that, in particular, are so serious that they, again, in Mr. Ruff's words, quote, subvert our system of government 
and would justify overturning a popular election, close quote. In other words, an entire branch of government, removal from office cannot be based upon an impeachable offense or offenses which are, in essence, nothing more than, paraphrasing President Gerald Ford now, whatever a partisan majority of the House of Representatives considers them to be. And to supplement that cited statement 50 years ago, in 1970, from then-Congressman Jerry Ford in connection with the prospect of potentially impeaching a Supreme Court justice, Ford pointedly clarified that executive branch of impeachments are different because voters can remove the president, the vice president, and all persons holding office at their pleasure at least every four years. To remove a president in midterm, it has been tried before and never done, would indeed, he said, require crimes of the magnitude of treason and bribery. Professor Akhil Amar of Yale Law School made largely the same point during the Clinton impeachment about the danger presented through presidential impeachment of transforming an entire branch of government. When they remove a duly elected president, they undo the votes of millions of ordinary Americans on election day. That is not something, he continued, that senators should do lightly lest we slide toward a kind of parliamentary government that our entire structure of government was designed to repudiate. In hammering home the constitutional uniqueness of presidential impeachments, he emphasized the case of Richard Nixon and distinguished it that, uh, from Andrew Johnson. That is to say, only when extremely high crimes and gross abuses of official power indeed pose a threat to our basic constitutional system, a threat as high and truly as malignant to democratic government as treason and bribery. When I entered the scene and succeeded my colleague and co-counsel here, Judge Kenneth Starr, as independent counsel in October 1999, it was left for me to decide whether prosecution of President Clinton following impeachment nonetheless was warranted, consistent with the Department of Justice's principles of federal prosecution. And that matter was exhaustively considered in the midst of a federal grand jury investigation that I commissioned in order to decide first whether crimes in fact had been committed. I found that they had. And I later said so publicly in the final report, expressly authorized and mandated by Congress, concluding the Lewinsky investigation. Significantly, though, I also determined that the prosecution of the president while in or once he left office would not be in the national interest given alternative available means short of prosecution in order to hold the president accountable for his conduct. Those means included a written acknowledgement by the president two years after his Senate trial that his testimony under oath before the grand jury had in fact been false and a related agreement to suspend his law license. The price paid by President Clinton was indeed high and it stemmed, in the end, from the need to vindicate the principle, first raised most prominently during Watergate, that no person, including the president, is above the law. Despite President Clinton's subsequent protestation in his memoirs that I was just another federal prosecutor out to extract, in his words, a pound of flesh, I credit the president to this day with agreeing to do what was necessary in order to exercise my discretion not to prosecute. 
namely that for the good of the country and recognizing the unique place that the president, indeed any president, occupies in our constitutional government, accountability and discretion go hand in hand and permitted, indeed demanded, such an appropriate resolution. A brazenly partisan political impeachment by House Democrats is not, I submit, in the best interest of this country. Because in the final analysis, we will all be judged in the eyes of history on whether in this moment we acted with the country's overriding welfare firmly in mind, rather than in advancing the cause of partisan political advantage. I have always believed as an article of faith that in good times and in hard times and even in bad times with matters of importance at stake that this country gets the big things right. I have seen that in my own life and from my own experience even in Washington DC. Well members of the Senate this what lies before you now is just such a big thing. The next election awaits. Election day is only nine months away. As Senator Dale Bumpers eloquently concluded in arguing against President Clinton's removal from office, and I quote, that's the day when we reach across the aisle and hold hands, Democrats and Republicans, and we say, win or lose, we will abide by the decision. It is a solemn event, presidential elections, and it should not, they should not, be undone lightly or just because one side has political clout and the other one doesn't, close quote. Finally, Professor Alan Dershowitz makes the case that presidential abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. Citing historical context, Professor Dershowitz argues that this impeachment is unconstitutional. The Senate must consider three issues in this case. The first is whether the evidence presented by the House managers establishes by the appropriate standard of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that the factual allegations occurred. The second is whether, if these factual allegations occurred, did they rise to the level of abuse of power and or obstruction of Congress. Finally, the Senate must determine whether abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are constitutionally authorized criteria for impeachment. The first issue is largely factual, and I leave that to others. The second is a combination of traditional and constitutional law, and I will touch on those. The third is a matter of pure constitutional law. The conclusion I will offer for your consideration is similar, though not identical, to that advocated by highly respected Justice Benjamin Curtis, who, as you know, dissented from the Supreme Court's notorious decision in Dred Scott, and who, after resigning in protest from the High Court, served as counsel to President Andrew Johnson in the Senate impeachment trial. He argued, and I quote, there can be no crime, there can be no misdemeanor without a law, written or unwritten, express or implied. In so arguing, he was echoing the conclusion reached by Dean Theodore Dwight of the Columbia Law School, who wrote in 1867, just before the impeachment, unless a crime is specifically named in the Constitution, treason and bribery, Impeachments like indictments can only be instituted for crimes committed against the statutory law of the United States. The framers of our Constitution implicitly rejected, and if it had been presented to them, would have explicitly rejected such vague terms as abuse of power and obstruction of Congress as among the enumerated and defined criteria 
for impeaching a president. Judge Curtis's interpretation is supported. Indeed, in his view, it was compelled by the constitutional text. Treason, bribery, and other crimes and misdemeanors are high crimes. Other high crimes and misdemeanors must be akin to treason and bribery. Curtis cited the Latin phrase, nocitur i soci, I'm sorry for the mispronunciation, referring to a classic rule of interpretation that when the meaning of a word that is part of a group of words is uncertain, you should look to the other words in that group that provide interpretive context. The, the late Justice Anthony Scalia gave the following current example. If one speaks of Mickey Mantle, Rocky Marciano, Michael Jordan, and other great competitors, the last noun does not reasonably refer to Sam Walton, who was a great competitor, but in business, or to Napoleon, a great competitor on the battlefield. Applying that rule to the groups of words, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, the last five words should be interpreted to include only serious criminal behavior akin to treason and bribery. Now, I want to be clear, there's a nuanced difference between the arguments made by Curtis and Dwight and the argument that I am presenting here today, based on my reading of history. Curtis argued that there must be a specific violation of pre-existing law. He recognized that at the time of the Constitution, there were no federal criminal statutes. Of course not. The Constitution established the national government, so we couldn't have statutes prior to the establishment of our Constitution and our nation. This argument is offered today by proponents of this impeachment on the claim that framers could not have intended to limit the criteria to, for impeachment to criminal-like behavior. Justice Curtis addressed that issue and that argument head on. He pointed out that crimes such as bribery would be made criminal by the laws of the United States, which the framers of the Constitution knew would be passed. In other words, he anticipated that Congress would soon enact statutes punishing and defining crimes such as burglary, extortion, perjury, etc. He anticipated that, and he based his argument in part on that. The Constitution already included treason as a crime, and that was defined in the Constitution itself, and then it uh, included um, uh, other crimes. But what Justice Curtis said is that you could include laws written or unwritten, expressed or implied, by which he meant common law, which at the time of the Constitution, there were many common law crimes, and they were enforceable, even federally, until the Supreme Court, many years later, decided that common law crimes were no longer part of federal jurisdiction. So the position that I've derived from the history would include, and this is a word that has upset some people, but would include criminal-like conduct akin to treason and bribery. There need not be, in my view, conclusive evidence of a technical crime that would necessarily result in a criminal conviction. Let me explain. For example, if a president were to receive or give a bribe outside of the United States and outside of the statute of limitations, he could not technically be prosecuted in the United States for such a crime. But I believe he could be impeached for such a crime because he committed the crime of bribery even though he couldn't technically be accused of it in the United States. That's the distinction that I think we draw. Or if a president committed extortion, perjury, or obstruction of justice, he could be charged with these crimes as impeachable offenses because these crimes, though not specified in the Constitution, 
are akin to treason and bribery. This would be true even if some of the technical elements, time and place, were absent. What Curtis and Dwight and I agree upon, and this is the key point in this impeachment case, please understand what I'm arguing, is that purely non-criminal conduct, including abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, are outside the range of impeachable offenses. That is the key argument I'm presenting today. I said that. At that time, I had not done the extensive research on that issue because it was irrelevant to the Clinton case, and I was not fully aware of the compelling counter-arguments. So I simply accepted the academic consensus on an issue that was not on the front burner at the time. But because this impeachment directly raises the issue of whether criminal behavior is required, I have gone back and read all the relevant historical material as nonpartisan academics should always do. Now here I'm making, I think, a very important point. Even if the Senate were to conclude that a technical crime is not required for impeachment, the critical question remains, and it's the question I now want to address myself to, do abuse of power and obstruction of Congress constitute impeachable offenses? The relevant history answers that question clearly in the negative. Each of these charges suffers from the vice of being, quote, so vague a term that they will be equivalent of tenure at the pleasure of the Senate, to quote, again, the father of our Constitution. Abuse of power is an accusation, easily leveled by political opponents against controversial presidents. Like all human beings, presidents and other politicians persuade themselves that their actions, seen by their opponents as self-serving, are primarily in the national interest. In order to conclude that such mixed motive actions constitute an abuse of power, opponents must psychoanalyze the president and attribute to him a singular self-serving motive. Such a subjective probing of motives cannot be the legal basis for a serious accusation of abuse of power that could result in the removal of an elected president. The claim that foreign policy decisions can be deemed abuses of power based on subjective opinions about mixed or sole motives, that the president was interested only in helping himself demonstrate the dangers of employing the vague, subjective, and politically malleable phrase abuse of power as a constitutionally permissible criteria for the removal of a president. Now, it follows, it follows from this that if a president, any president, were to have done what the Times reported about the contact of the Bolton manuscript, that would not constitute an impeachable offense. Let me repeat, nothing in the Bolton revelations, even if true, would rise to the level of an abuse of power or an impeachable offense. That is clear from the history. That is clear from the language of the Constitution. You cannot turn conduct that is not impeachable into impeachable conduct simply by using words like quid pro quo and personal benefit. It is inconceivable that the framers would have intended so politically loaded and promiscuously deployed a term as abuse of power to be weaponized as a tool of impeachment. It is precisely the kind of vague, open-ended, and subjective term that the framers feared and rejected. Words like abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are standardless. It's impossible 
to put standards into words like that. Both are subjective matters of degree and amenable to varying partisan interpretations. It's impossible to know in advance whether a given action will subsequently be deemed to be on one side or the other of the line. Indeed, the same action with the same state of mind can be deemed abusive or obstructive when done by one person, but not when done by another. That is the essence of what the rule of law is not. When you have a criteria that can be applied to one person in one way and another person in another way, and they both fit within the terms abuse of power. Can the Senate then consider other conduct in deciding the discretionary issue of whether removal is warranted? In other words, your jurisdiction is based on commission of an impeachable offense. Once that jurisdictional element is satisfied, you have broad discretion to determine whether removal is warranted and you consider a wide array, a wide array of conduct, criminal and non-criminal. But you have no jurisdiction to remove unless there is at least one impeachable offense within the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors. I willingly acknowledge that the academic consensus is that criminal conduct is not required for impeachment and that abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are sufficient. I have read and respectfully considered the academic work of my many colleagues who disagree with my view and the few who accept it. I respectfully urge each of you to imagine that the person being impeached were of the opposite party of the current president, but that in every other respect, the facts were the same. I have applied this test to the constitutional arguments I am offering today. I would be making the same constitutional arguments in opposition to the impeachment on these two grounds, regardless of whether I voted for or against the president, and regardless of whether I agreed or disagreed with his or her policies. Those of you who know me know that that is the absolute truth. It is an important test because how you vote on this case will serve as a precedent for how other senators of different parties, different backgrounds, and different perspectives vote in future cases. Allowing a duly elected president to be removed on the basis of the standardless, subjective, ever-changing criteria, abuse of power, and obstruction of Congress. Mr. Cipollone. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, Senators. Don't worry, this won't take very long. We're going to stop for the day and we'll continue with our presentations tomorrow. But I just had three observations that I wanted to briefly make for you. First of all, thank you very much, Professor Dershowitz and all of the presenters from our side today. I was sitting here listening to Professor Dershowitz and believe it or not, my mind went back to law school. And I began thinking, how would this impeachment look as a law school hypothetical question on an exam? How would we answer that question? And I found myself thinking, maybe that's a good way to think about it. The question would go something like this. Imagine you are a United States Senator and you are sitting in an impeachment trial. The articles of impeachment before you have been passed on a purely partisan basis for the first time in history. In fact, there was bipartisan opposition 
to the articles of impeachment. They have been trying to impeach the President from the moment of his inauguration for no reason, just because he won. The articles before you do not allege a crime or, any, or even any violation of the civil law. One article alleges obstruction of Congress simply for exercising longstanding constitutional rights that every president has exercised. The president was given no rights in the House of Representatives. The Judiciary Committee conducted only two days of hearings. You are sitting through your sixth day of trial. The House is demanding witnesses from you that they refused to seek themselves. When confronted with expedited court proceedings regarding subpoenas they had issued, they actually withdrew those subpoenas. They are now criticizing you in strong accusatory language if you don't capitulate to their unreasonable demands and sit in your seats for months. An election is only months away, and for the first time in history, they are asking you to remove a president from the ballot. They are asking you to do something that violates all past historical precedents that you have studied in this class and principles of democracy and take the choice away from the American people. It would tear apart the country for generations and change our constitutional system forever. Question, what should you do? Your first thought might be, that's not a realistic hypothetical. That could never happen in America. But then you would be happy because you'd have an easy answer and you can be done with your law school exam and it would be, you immediately reject the articles of impeachment. Bonus question, should your answer depend on your political party? Answer, no. My second observation is that I actually think it's very instructive to watch the old videos from the last time this happened, when many of you were so make, making so eloquently, more eloquently than we are, the points that we are making about the law and precedent. But that's not playing a game of gotcha. That's paying you a compliment. You were right about those principles. You were right about those principles. And if you won't listen to me, I would urge you to listen to your younger selves. You were right. And the third observation in sitting here today, Judge Starr talked about that we are in the age of impeachment, in the age of constant investigations. Imagine, imagine, Imagine if all of that energy was being used to solve the problems of the American people. Imagine if the age of impeachment was over in the United States. Imagine that. And I was listening to Professor Dershowitz talking about the shoe on the other foot rule. And it makes a lot of sense. I would maybe put it differently. I would maybe call it the golden rule of impeachment for the Democrats the golden rule could be 
do unto Republicans as you would have them do unto Democrats. And hopefully we will never be in another position in this country where we have another impeachment, but vice versa for that rule. Those are my three observations. I hope that's helpful. Those were the thoughts that I had listening to the presentations. But at the end of the day, the most important thought is this. This choice belongs to the American people. They will get to make it months from now. The Constitution and common sense and all of our history prevent you from removing the president from the ballot. There's no basis for it in the facts. There's simply no basis for it in the law. And I would urge you to quickly come to that conclusion so we can go have an election. Thank you very much for your attention, and thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I ask unanimous consent that the trial adjourn <clears throat> until 1 p.m. Tuesday, January 28, and this order also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Without objection, we are adjourned. This has been day six of the impeachment. The proceedings will resume tomorrow at 1 p.m. Thank you for listening. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adulski, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. The Impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.